This is Innovating a Bright Future. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Innovating a Bright Future. I'm your host, Avery Kreibold. This is a show where we look at the innovative and revolutionary technologies driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. It is so good to be back. Before we start this episode, I want to refresh your memory on what this season is all about. If you've listened to the last two seasons of this show, you know that typically, each episode, I talk to someone from a company or organization related to climate change, sustainability, renewable energy, or climate technology. Something along those lines. This season is going to be quite different. First of all, it's a shorter season, with only five regular episodes and a bunch of bonus episodes. Now, I highly recommend that you listen to these episodes in order, especially the main ones, because I'm going to be telling you all about the story of Iceland. If you know anything about Iceland, that's great. If you know nothing about Iceland, all the better. I'm not going to spoil it, you'll have to listen to this season. Throughout this season, I'm going to talk to a bunch of amazing individuals from Iceland, and they're going to teach me all about their amazing country, and how they relate to climate change and sustainability. Even though it's going to be a shorter season, we're going to still release as many episodes as possible, so there's quite a few more bonus episodes than usual. I think I've droned on long enough, let's get into the story of Iceland. The first thing you need to know about Iceland is that in terms of society and culture, it's pretty new. The island itself was formed about 70 million years ago as a result of the Mid-Atlantic Rift, which allowed a large pocket of magma to form the island, but settlers did not arrive on the island until much later. To this day, that pocket of magma is the underlying source of geothermal energy that powers a large portion of the country and supplies residential, municipal, and industrial heating for pretty much every building in the entire country. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to that later. There is no record of any people and hardly any mammals on the island until about 861 Common Era. This was when a mixture of Celts and Norse settlers, led by Nedod the Viking, arrived on the island. I'm going to do my absolute best to pronounce everything right in the show, but if I get something wrong, just know that I am trying my best, and Iceland is kind of a difficult language, I've found, at least for an outsider like me. Nadod actually discovered Iceland accidentally while searching for the Faroe Islands and brought word back to Norway of the island, which led it to be settled for the first time officially only a few short years later. Following Nadod's discovery, Iceland went through a flurry of ages and eras characterized first by settlement. Viking settlers, the most prominent of which was Floki Vilgardersen, maybe, came to the island and began setting up a society. It was a relatively detached society, with the majority of people living alone on homesteads and self-sufficient farms. Yeah, well, Iceland was one of the last places on Earth to get, you know, a, a, a human population. Mostly with, with Scandinavians, a part of the population, assumingly many of the slaves came from the British Isles. A few decades later, some of those first Icelandic settlers... Uh, went to Greenland, where they met with indigenous people there. And in, in many ways, you can say that at that point, the, the, the globe had, had been uh, fully populized because uh, that, that was the moment when, when 
both the branches uh, of the, of the big outbreak from 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 Africa, Matt, you know, from from both directions. These first settlers, they came to this vast country, which must have have seemed very alien to them, because, uh, for example, Iceland has several active volcanoes. You you can expect a volcanic eruption every two or three years in this. Many many other things, such as as geothermal activity with hot springs and and, and, and things like that, uh, that would be completely alien to the Scandinavians. And this was a harsh country, but it was big and with a relatively tiny population, they could thrive on very primitive agriculture and and sustain themselves uh, with with, with fisheries uh, as well. That is Stefan Paulsen, an Icelandic historian who has spent the majority of his life studying and learning from the history of Reykjavik and Iceland as a whole. And, well, I'll let him introduce himself. Just Stefan Paulsson. I have now started as a, a wise councilman for the city of Reykjavik, you know. From from now on, I'm 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 not as much working as a freelance historian, but instead I'm sitting on committees, you know, on uh, internal matters of Reykjavik. So there's a lot of reading and and catching up to do right now. My main field of historical research, uh, uh, apart from uh, history of technology, is the development of Reykjavik. You know, uh, and I'm pretty convinced that knowing the history is good, you know, for for uh, policy decisions for the future. I am an historian, and and I, I got into this field as main curator at the the Reykjavik Energy Museum. So I have been studying the uh, history of electrification of Iceland and Reykjavik, uh, more specifically, uh, for quite a long time. So instead of just focusing on the, the the past of Reykjavik, I will now be working on shaping its future. But the thing is also, I mean, Iceland is a, a, a tiny society and we all have to have several hats, you know. Stefan is going to be one of our appreciated guests this season. As he said, he was recently appointed wise councilman for the city that he has studied for most of his life. So innovating a bright future is so privileged to have gained his insight on the project that is this season. You'll be hearing his voice throughout the rest of this episode and the rest of this season. From the late 9th century onwards, the Icelandic culture would undergo shifts and changes. Changes in culture and religion, in societal power, sometimes ruled by religious institutions, the clergy, or spiritualists, and sometimes ruled by a monarchical power. But altogether, the identity of Iceland as a self-sustaining, relatively independent society remained the dominant culture. And the short version of the story is that is how Iceland was for a very long time. Iceland is a pretty large island if you look at it on the map. And with such a small population, there was room enough for plenty of farms dotted around the island. There was no need for towns or cities. Each family typically owned its own share of land and utilized it for farming. It was meant to be a self-sufficient society. Each family lived their own lives, fed themselves, and simply lived out their days farming the land. As the ages went on, their culture developed and their values changed. But the system remained mostly the same. As for the abundant natural resources in the form of geothermal and hydropower energy sources, the Icelanders had no method of harnessing such earthly power, which is why the natural features of the land, such as steam vents and large rivers, were actually condemned. Farmers hated having these features on their land because they only represented another way for their herd to come to harm. And, and obviously, 
a lot of things changed in, in Iceland throughout history. But we did not see a lot of technological development and, and, and modernization that we could witness in Europe, partly because there was not much need. For example, the agriculture uh, that uh, Icelanders used to, to sustain themselves was not dependent on many people, you know. So it was not like the, the agrarian societies of, of, of Europe where you had a big motivation to come up with a technical development, you know, to, to, to save manpower. On the contrary, workforce was uh, cheap in, in this, this country. The type of agriculture uh, chosen meant that there was no need for villages and, and towns forming. So everyone lived on an isolated farm. The, the fisheries was quite primitive as, as well, with people just rowing out to the, 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 the sea on, on, on small rowing boats. did not mean that there was any need for, for harbors or fishing towns and, and, and villages. So we were latecomer to industrialization, and it was really in the 19th century when, when, when Icelanders could see big fishing vessels from uh, European countries coming to the Icelandic seas and catching fish in big quantities with a lot more sophisticated methods than, than the, the, the Icelanders that we first started to see some urbanization with, with small fishing villages, and especially after the mechanization of the fisheries in, in, the, in the early 20th century, we started to see the growth of a more uh, technologically advanced Iceland. This was when things started to change in Iceland, as the era of progress began in the late 19th century and carried through until the early 20th century. You can almost imagine how the scene went. A small Icelandic fishing boat is out in the bay, just hoping to catch something for supper that evening, when a huge ship appears on the horizon. Steam engines pumping, nets and lines bigger than the fisherman has ever seen in his life, tons of fish, cod, haddock, mackerel, and herring, enough to feed his family for months. In such a sight, the fisherman, and Iceland as a whole, sees opportunity. This was when things started to change. Up until this point, Iceland had been a part of Danish rule. They operated under Danish control and had a somewhat suppressed culture and nation as a whole as a result. When the Danes granted Iceland home rule in 1904, it was the opportunity that the nation needed to expand its technology and stability. Having at least a semblance of control over their affairs, even though they were still under Danish control, made it possible to reinvent their social systems. Social services in the country expanded, with school becoming compulsory, telegraph lines connecting the island to mainland Europe, and steam and motor-driven boats became more common. Social autonomy also grew, with more opportunities for women and propertyless men to participate in governmental processes. A larger social safety net began to be established with trade and labor unions. This was altogether a moment of transformation for Icelandic society. The country became more and more reliant on import and export trades, and their previously disjointed society began to gather in fishing villages, towns, and Reykjavik, which would one day become their capital. What was once a very self-sufficient nation thanks to a population largely unreliant and uninterested by their political leaders, became a welfare state with an economy based on agriculture and fishery products. Icelanders became uh, very much dependent upon export uh, industry. You know, we exported 
agricultural products that would mostly be like uh, wool and, and clothes made out of, of, of wool, and then later fish. And instead, we were importing necessary materials, yeah, like uh, lumber, uh, like tar, uh, like iron, uh, like salt, and the little grain that we ate. With the growth of cities in, in, in Europe, there started to grow a, a market for, for Icelandic uh, fish. So there, there came this, this moment that you could start to build up a, a relatively prosperous society based on fisheries. You know, So instead of being first and foremost an, an agricultural society trying to be pretty much self-sufficient as much as they, 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 they could, we slowly went over to becoming a fisheries country, and for quite a long time, the fisheries uh, was by far our, our, our uh, most important economy. The beginning of globalization and consistently advancing global trade routes and strategies had an extreme impact on how Iceland functioned. Growing international markets meant that there was a high demand for the fish that came from Icelandic fisheries. With the first and second industrial revolutions came two important factors. Bigger cities in Europe, which gave rise to more demand for fish and better prices on exports for Iceland, and better technology that could be used to acquire the fish and other export materials. All at once, Iceland had an economy in demand, better technology to increase supply, and access to imports of essential materials that would be needed for industrialization and development. And so... Iceland began to urbanize, building out more permanent infrastructure using materials from mainland Europe. Iceland was swept up in a wave of successful trade and extremely plentiful resources, both from the island and from imports. There was an unforeseen problem, though. As more energy and resources were sourced from outside of Iceland's borders, the country became less self-sufficient and became inextricably reliant on other countries. With urbanization came a reliance on fossil fuels, which were not produced in Iceland. At the time, industry remained fairly analog, based off of agriculture and fishery exports. Their imports of industrial materials and fossil fuels, however, quickly became integral to the function of Icelandic society. And what Iceland understandably didn't foresee was a world war. So at the same time as Iceland was finding its feet under their new home rule, nations across the world were gearing up for World War I. International tensions rose as Iceland continued to develop its infrastructure and establish more supports for its increasingly integrated population. As the global conflict continued to heat up, the first thing to feel its impacts was trade routes and trade agreements. I'll let Stefan explain. Another uh, huge motivation was that Iceland suffered quite badly from the First World War. Not that we were directly involved in, in, in the war, but leading up, Iceland had become seriously dependent upon import of coals, mostly from Britain and oil. During the war, shipping lines, you know, were broken and the grave situation in, 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 in Iceland where they lacked loads of, of necessary uh, materials caused terrible shortages, you know, and near starvation. And, and that was a big wake-up call for uh, many in this, 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 this country. People were always expecting another big war coming up. So the emphasis on self-sustainability when it came to energy was very clear. 
it's interesting to 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 see that that for example the 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 waterfalls the the hydropower in Iceland was often referred to as the white coals P- people saw it both as an economic uh, necessity but also a major security issue and a matter of national pride that we would not need to count on imported fuel instead rely on our you know local power sources and this was long long before there's any environmental issues were, 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 were coming into the equation you know so we switched over to renewables not because we were environmentalists but as a self-serving strategy in a, a world where you could always expect a major war to break out and break down of international trade it was a bad combination for Iceland, a complete roller coaster of development for the country. Within the space of a few short decades, Icelandic culture and technology emerged from a relatively secluded and isolated state, outgrew the complete control of the Danes to begin ruling themselves, and began the construction of a welfare state. Then the country went through intense and fast urbanization and industrialization as the country grew accustomed to relying on the import export business. It made more money than it ever had and began to spend that money on expensive imports to continue growing the industry of the country. The problem was, they overcommitted. Iceland didn't have a diverse enough economy to remain stable in, say, a world war. This is in no way their fault, there was no way to know what was going to happen. However, hyper-specialization did not help them in the following years as their export businesses lost the entirety of their market and European countries had bigger issues to worry about than trading resources with the island nation. And so Iceland was kind of screwed, honestly. It was a tough position to be in, as a result of an over-dependence on import-export and the sudden halt to that business, many people in Iceland lost their jobs, their livelihoods. A large portion of the population were left without a way to put food on the table. This situation left the country as a whole in a depression. They had lost their best source of income, and the Icelanders felt that. As Stefan said, It completely turned the Icelandic culture on its head for the second time in a remarkably short period of time. All of a sudden, instead of a country open to trade and reveling in the prosperity of its opportunities, Iceland became a country once again obsessed with self-sufficiency. And this moment changed the fate of the country forever. This event set in motion the catalyst for Iceland's energy transformation. It made Icelanders once again value their independence and made national sovereignty an utmost priority in the coming years. As such, from this point onwards, Iceland would pour time, money, energy, and expertise into building out infrastructure that would allow them to be sustainable and independent once again. It was not a fast process. Icelanders did not have as much exposure to technologies like the first hydropower facilities, and definitely didn't have the knowledge about geothermal at this point. But it began to grow. The engineering required to generate energy using the forces of the Earth became more prominent, as we'll talk about in the next episode. As they continued to develop their energy systems and the infrastructure to accompany it, the rest of the world carried on. The First World War ended without Iceland ever becoming directly involved, but they still suffered greatly due mostly to resource and food shortages. Through the 1920s and 30s, Iceland continued to work on hydropower and geothermal energy opportunities while still operating under Danish rule, but we'll talk about that more next time as well. Iceland once again began to get to its feet. 
it had started to establish the necessary resources on the island to become self-sufficient. Although they weren't there yet, Icelandic culture began to coalesce into strength once again. They became ever more independent of their Danish rulers, more capable of running their own country independent of fossil fuel trading with the mainland, and more confident in their own culture and heritage. Iceland still had to face the Great Depression of the 30s, however, which was made even more bleak for the Icelanders by the continuous conflicts and instability in their political institutions, as well as the Spanish Civil War, which once again limited their fish trade market. It wasn't long after that that global tensions began to rise again. In the build-up to World War II, Iceland continued to focus on its internal problems instead of involving itself in international politics. All of this coalesced with the Second World War. Though Iceland did not actively participate on either side, its impact on Iceland cannot be overstated. First, and probably the most dramatic, Denmark was occupied by Axis forces, effectively separating the Icelandic state from that of Denmark. Following the war, Iceland chose not to negotiate the treaty, establishing Iceland as a republic independent from Danish rule. From this point on, Iceland was now an independent republic, with its own parliament and an official capital in the city of Reykjavik. This was not the only impact of the Second World War, however. Early in the war, Iceland was occupied by Britain in an effort to preemptively halt a German invasion of Iceland. Although it was not ideal to be roped into the war in such a way, Iceland remained neutral and did not participate in the conflict. The country did, however, profit massively by hosting the British troops. Later in the war, the occupation of Iceland transferred to the Americans, which only increased the profits of Icelandic businesses. Similarly, even though Iceland did not actively participate in the war, they did benefit from the following U.S. Marshall Plan. If you don't know what that is, let me give you the basics in 30 seconds. The U.S. Marshall Plan was basically a U.S. tactic to help Western European countries who were impacted by the war recover. That's it. Bare bones. The U.S. took this upon themselves to quell any communist tendencies that could be supported as a result of the strife and struggle following the end of the war. So all in all, Iceland came out of the First World War with a new mission and a new sense of identity as a country. It struggled for a while before emerging from the Second World War with a whole lot more money and resources than it went in. It also emerged with an official independence and the necessary requirements to build a self-sufficient welfare state. On top of all of this, because World War II advanced transportation and communication technology so much, Iceland was able to capitalize on its fish markets once again without as much fear of instability or collapse. They implemented newer trawling technologies and expanded their fishing zones in order to capitalize on export profit and maximize the development of the country. So what happened next? I guess you'll have to listen to the next episode to find out. This first episode was more of a general history of Iceland. I hope I gave you enough background information to understand the rest of the Iceland story, and also the motivation behind Iceland's transition, because I find that part pretty interesting as well. One of the things that Stefan made very clear when he was explaining all of this, was that Iceland didn't make the transition to local and renewable energy sources out of a concern for the environment. They made the transition out of a sense of security, pride, independence, and you could even argue a little bit of fear. And when those motivators were coupled together and made clear to the public, the public united under the cause and decided as one that the best thing that they could do was pursue energy independence. 
Of course, it wasn't unanimous across the country, but it never will be, and Iceland was fairly united on this issue, at least relatively. We're going to talk more about what we can learn from Iceland as we near the end of the story, but I want to put this out there now because that is why I chose Iceland to be the topic of an entire season of this show. Even though it wasn't because of environmental concerns or climate change, Iceland came together to solve the prominent social issue of their time. It didn't take centuries, and it didn't make the country fall into a pit of economic downturn or collapse. If we can do the same, as every other country around the world, and as an international community, if we can also come together under one collective goal, like preventing climate change, then there is no reason why we can't do the same. For now, I hope you've enjoyed this background episode. Send us some feedback using the social media links in the show notes if you want to discuss the episode at all. I want to acknowledge Stefan Paulson for making this episode possible. I've learned so much about Iceland from our conversation, and he has supplied much of the information for this season. I also want to thank Green by Iceland, Business by Iceland, and Kama Thordarsson specifically for making this episode possible and connecting this show to the wonderful Icelandic guests that will be featured throughout the season. Your work is very much appreciated. We're back. Isn't this exciting? Stay innovative, and I'll see you next time.